1: And specifically, we're talking SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'm so very excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Narala Jacoby. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Narala Jacoby is a naturopathic doctor and is considered one of Australia's leading experts in the treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, known as SIBO, which is a common cause of IBS. She lectures nationally and internationally about the assessment and treatment of SIBO and is the host of the popular podcast, The SIBO Doctor, Podcast for Practitioners. She is the medical director and senior naturopathic physician at the Biome Clinic, Center for Functional Digestive Disorders in New South Wales. Dr. Jacoby, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show.
2: My pleasure and thanks for inviting me on your show.
1: So we've had, um, we've spoken about SIBO on our podcast many times in the past. So I kind of wanted to address um, dealing with difficult cases of SIBO. And so Hmm. I'm so happy to have you on because you put together a diet called the biphasic diet. And you talk about trying to figure out, if the patient has histamine intolerance or not, and maybe other types of food uh, sensitivities along the way. And I think if we can also touch on hydrogen sulfide and constipation as well, <laughs> there's there's so many things we can talk about, but I, we only mm. have a limited amount of time. So I think the best place to start would be your biphasic diet.
2: Mm, sure. Sure. So the biphasic diet really came about because, you know, I have German background and I like order. So I put it together for practitioners to really organize their treatment approach for their SIBO cases. So it's a diet that's uh, based on the uh, low fermentable carbohydrate diet known as FODMAP diet, as well as the SIBO specific food guide that was formulated or put together by Dr. Seebecker. So I kind of put it together into two phases and made my own adjustments and uh, really wanted to offer something to patients and practitioners that made it a bit more streamlined um, and also focused on uh, a pretty in, pretty strong um, food restriction initially to already affect bacterial fermentation so that when we start antimicrobials, the die-off effect which occurs when you have a lot of bacterial uh, or bacteria being killed and you're basically absorbing their toxic endotoxins um, to really minimize that. So that's that's how that came about. And out of that, well the biphasic diet now has been downloaded virtually uh, thousands and thousands of times and all over the world and it's been we get get very good feedback with it. Of course, there's always, Exceptions um, and difficult cases, as you mentioned, of where we may have to make further adjustments to it. But out of that really came also my experience that, I mean, you know, the the kind of patient that I see now is not your simple SIBO case anymore. I, I see pretty advanced and difficult and failed cases. And so I uh, saw more and more histamine intolerance, which can actually occur with um, long-standing SIBO and lots of other reasons as well. And so we, I formulated the SIBO histamine biphasic diet with um, a really exceptional uh, nutritionist and dietitian, Heidi Turner. So we put that together and offered that as well. Both of those are free downloads.
1: So like you, I see a lot of complex gut cases, and sometimes I wish to have just a simple case walk through my door, you know, yeah, I know right? and so yeah, that, I know. that's why I want to talk about the more complicated cases. So when you have a patient that you're uh, working with, what makes you suspicious that they might be in the histamine, you know, in that kind of group of people that have histamine issues?
2: Hmm. So um, let's kind of unpack that a little bit before we before I answer your question because maybe some people just associate histamine with allergies and you just take an antihistamine for that. But you actually have about five different receptors for histamine in your body that's in every imaginable compartment in your brain and um, in your digestive tract and uh you know in your immune system so you have lots of different areas where histamine is actually really important and serves a special function um and also you know when we when we eat food that's high in histamine like fermented foods or aged foods then um we we normally in a normal healthy human being there's no problem with that because we have an enzyme in our digestive tract that's that's geared towards breaking down food-based histamine So when we then start to see histamine be a problem, we don't just see allergies, we see also headaches, we can see gas and bloating, we can see constipation or diarrhea, we see abdominal cramping, we see menstrual cramping, we see insomnia. So you can see how this can be quite confusing because a lot of people have that, that don't necessarily have histamine intolerance. But I'd say if I see um, food intolerance, it's just generally somebody saying, I just don't feel good after meals besides the gas and bloating, um, but I just feel, um, I react to a lot of foods, I have a lot of headaches, that's always sometimes a clue, and, um, you know, uh, or reflux or heartburn can be associated with histamine as well. So I see a, a certain picture that ticks a lot of boxes, I would say.
1: And then to add to that, what I've seen in my practice as well, and I start considering um if histamine is a part of the picture, if the patient also complains about um, skin, their skin is getting red or they're flushing or they have itchy skin or even hives, then, then my radar is is like, Oh yeah, they have histamine issues. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, you cannot really have hives without some element of histamine. That's very true. Yeah.
1: And so um, with the histine component of your biphasic diet, can you just kind of tell us how is that different from the original biphasic The regular diet? biphasic yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll call and, it the <laughs> original.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay, that, that's very good. Um, you know, and it, we, we agonized over it, Heidi and I, because we, we the more we worked on it, the more restrictive the diet became. And so it's sort of, it. the difference is for the practitioner, they would go more towards the histamine and SIBO biphasic diet if uh, your patient has, all of the the symptoms that we've just mentioned, or especially hives, I would say for sure, because there's also a you know a, a more advanced case of histamine intolerance known as mast cell activation syndrome, but that's maybe outside the scope of this right now. but so the difference between the original and the histamine diet is that we the the, the original one has phase one and phase two still be within the context of FODMAPs or these fermentable carbohydrates. And it's just an like level one or phase one is basically very restrictive. And then phase two is a bit more generous. The histamine one really focuses on foods that are high in histamine so and as well as fermentable carbohydrates. So it combines the histamine Foods, as well as the histamine, what are known as histamine-liberating foods, like limes, for example, or citrus can be uh, histamine-liberating, and it just liberates histamine from foods. So phase one um, of the histamine biphasic diet eliminates both histamine and histamine-liberators, as well as fat mass. And uh, then phase two, you're adding in histamine-liberators again. And it can happen, like phase one only needs to be maybe a week or two, Uh, And then you can start to add foods back in. And then when you're done with that and you've identified uh, or calmed that whole histamine response, you can transition onto the phase two of the regular biphasic diet.
1: And so one of the nice things about your biphasic diet is, as you said, with your German heritage, it's very structured. And and I Mm. think sometimes patients, they get frustrated with these different diets if they because they're always eliminating foods right and they're mm-hmm. then they're unsure as what they should be eating and then on the bi, bi, uh sorry biphasic diet you have listed the foods that they should be able to tolerate
2: Hmm. yeah so um it's it's divided into basically really simple avoid and enjoy i think it's called or or you know have these foods these uh, allowed and avoid that's it um and so you know i mean we phase one is like i said extremely restrictive in terms of uh no dairy no fruit no starch um And basically protein and 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 allowable vegetables but even there you have to be careful of what vegetables you're eating because a lot of vegetables like celery or asparagus for example are very high in these fermentable fibers and what you're trying to do is um, well starve for lack of a better term these bacteria that are overgrown in the in the upper gut now it's important to mention that you cannot eradicate SIBO with diet alone we know that. It's, it's, you can manage symptoms with the diet, but you can't eradicate them. The eradication really comes with antimicrobials, um, and that's done usually in phase two.
1: And so in the big picture, we want to find SIBO, and then we want to treat it somehow, and along the way, make appropriate diet changes. And these SIBO diets are really not meant for long-term treatment. Eventually, we want to get the patient eating a a variety of foods again. That's the goal. That's
2: true. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Because we know that long-term reduction in fermentable uh, fibers is really starving your microbiome, which is the important organ that you have in your digestive tract that performs very important functions for you. And the more limited you are, so for example, if you... Are somebody who eats uh, mainly animal protein and and you know, like sort of like a paleo diet, um, but like you know a lot of paleo people just eat basically just meat and vegetables, but more meat than vegetables. And what you're doing there is you're really favoring the growth of a, a phylum of bacteria known as Bacteroidetes, and then you know you kind of like just selectively uh, feeding a certain group of bacteria that um, are also known to. Um, have problems if they overgrow. So it's, it's you know, we, I think as human beings, our ideal diet um, is likely to be an 80% plant-based diet. And that's what I think is a healthy diet, personally.
1: And within that plant, within that 80% plant-based, to have a lot of variety there, not just the same... Exactly. ...8, eight to 10 exactly. vegetables, there's a yes. lot of variety.
2: Yeah, so that's the goal, And I would, if we can backtrack, I actually think the goal of the practitioner is not even, I mean, yes, it is to identify SIBO, but what I usually tell practitioners um, is to find the cause of SIBO. What actually happened here? Because, you know, we have normal defenses that protect us from, uh, from bacterial overgrowth. Otherwise, all of us would have SIBO all the time. So uh, and it's really up to the practitioner to identify if this patient has SIBO due to some motility defect, whether that's uh, you know, having had a case of food poisoning that, that then triggers an autoimmune response and damages the normal cleansing wave of the upper gut known as the migrating motor complex, or that patient has hypothyroid or Ehlers-Danlos or hyper- hypermobility syndrome, or the myriad of things that can actually um, occur to damage this motility in the upper gut. Uh, The other area uh, of SIBO causes or underlying causes is digestive uh, poor digestion. So impaired digestion such as low stomach acid or low uh, um, enzyme output by your pancreas and bile output by your uh, liver. So these are uh, you know, juices that are the normal antibacterial defenses. And if you have some deficiency there, then it's also uh, a natural consequence that bac- that bacteria would just overgrow. And then there are certain medication that impair motility. And then lastly, the last category is um, impaired outflow. So this means that if you've had a, a surgery of any kind, uh, such as hysterectomy or even a laparoscopy to look for endometriosis or if you do have endometriosis or had your gallbladder removed or any sort of abdominal intervention, that can trigger scar formation known as adhesions that then can attach to the small intestine and and kind of kink it like a kink in a garden hose and then the food can't really flow through there very well and it's just like a river that's that's run stagnant and has algae growing in it and I usually have that sort of analogy for my patients as a visual so really addressing underlying causes is for me now really the sweet spot because SIBO is a natural consequence of these underlying causes and it's really important to find the cause.
1: I'm so glad that you mentioned that because in my private practice I I explain that so often to patients look finding SIBO that's relatively simple here here's the test kit you go do it we get the results, you, and that confirms you have SIBO. That's relatively easy. Treating it, that's harder, but really getting to the root of it, that's the hardest part.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that, especially if it's in the motility category, you know, I mean, if it's just low stomach acid, we know how to treat that. That's easy, right? But still there, you need to rule out, is it chronic gastritis or what, you know, what's really causing the achlorhydria or hypochlorhydria or low stomach acid. But um, I find that the motility category is getting bigger by the day, (laughs) you know, it's like we have traumatic brain injury that can cause vagal tone deficiencies that can then result in... Uh, poor motility in the upper gut. We can have stealth infections like Lyme and EBV even that uh, can can trigger um, issues with motility. So it's just a, a big ball of of problems or or we have to sort through that to really find the cause. I do have a, a free, um, I don't know if you've seen it because it's a relative recent release that we've uh, released from the SIBO doctor is what caused my SIBO handout um, that's really for patients and practitioners to just kind of at least get the attempt to identify which of these four categories is, is best represented on this questionnaire. So that's a really good resource for people so that their practitioner can wrap their head around um, what, what avenue to take to address the underlying cause.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for mentioning that. So I'll make sure to find that link and put it in the podcast notes so that our listeners can get that resource. Okay. So so one of the things that I also wanted to talk about is hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So, mm-hmm. you know, testing for this and treating for this, so this can be difficult. So can you talk about that, Narala?
2: yeah so hydrogen sulfide is a gas that is produced by uh, what we know as what are called sulfur reducing bacteria and it's a bit of a confusing term because they they reduce um, the reduction refers to a biochemical term not that it's reducing hydrogen sulfide but so sulfur-reducing bacteria are typically desulfovibrio or bilophilia, and they're also, they also use a main pathway that produces hydrogen sulfide from hydrogen and sulfur. And hydrogen, as we know, is one of the gases that we typically test for in a in a breath test, and so we typically use um, methane and hydrogen to check for SIBO, methane being more of a constipation uh, relation to SIBO and hydrogen can be either constipation or diarrhea. So, on a breath test, we can't really test for hydrogen sulfide yet. And there was some announcement by the Cedar Sinai group this year that they have developed a test that can check for this. And, uh, but I don't expect commercial availability of this really for another year or two at best. Um, so, you know, it's sort of What we've done so far is if there is a flatlining result in hydrogen and methane on a lactulose breath test, um, we, we end the patient has classic diarrhea symptoms because hydrogen sulfide in the small intestine is so toxic in high doses that it actually causes diarrhea. But in my experience and in my research, I find that if hydrogen sulfide production is ramped up in the colon, that it actually triggers constipation. So we have these two opposing ends of the spectrum. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, I think what we'll find is that it needs a different approach. It's very resistant to antibiotic use, typically, these sulfur reducing bacteria, and that we also probably need a, a different dietary approach to hydrogen sulfide than to other types of SIBO. So, you know, in my practice, I often, when I find it on a stool test, when I find these two sulfur-reducing bacteria on a PCR test or DNA test um, that's stool-based, which is not reflective, of course, what's happening in the small intestine, but I tend to adjust the biphasic diet to add more um, things like soy protein, like soy Uh, like tofu or tempeh, if they can tolerate it, of course, GMO-free, because there's some evidence that soy isoflavones are also helpful with this and that a low FODMAP diet might actually be the wrong diet for hydrogen sulfide.
1: And then for our listeners out there who are new to this hydrogen sulfide SIBO... Are, can you explain to them what symptoms might make you suspicious of hydrogen sulfide?
2: Hmm. So <clears throat> classically, we've heard about this, um, you know, very uh, uh, sort of this sort of gas that's very much like rotten eggs, which is, you know, um, pretty descriptive, I'd say um, it's very, it's very, very foul gas or burping that um, can smell like like you've just had basically like a very foul smell, is what I would say. But I can tell you that I don't always see that to be clinically there. The other symptoms can be pretty much anything that is SIBO-related. can be gas, bloating, diarrhea. Um, if it's SIBO, it's likely to be diarrhea. If it's more LIBO, it might be more constipation. But also people have systemic symptoms like either headaches, joint pain, um sort of pins and needles in their fingers. They can be super intolerant to alcohol, facial flushing, that type of thing.
1: So again, we start getting these very nonspecific symptoms. Yes. And it just gets yes. difficult to try and figure out yeah. what's going on. I think it'll be yeah. really
2: it'll be really great when we have the ability to just add that gas on to our um testing services now and it'll be one machine that does all three gases very likely
1: and then the other thing that will be good the other thing that i'll ask patients to see if you know i'm suspicious of hydrogen sulfide is i'll ask them if they eat a meal that has a lot of eggs in it do they how do they feel does it make them worse um if they eat a meal that has a lot of um Onions and garlic, you know, how do they feel on that? And if they eat a meal that mm-hmm. has a lot of cruciferous vegetables. So those are all foods that are very high in sulfur. And so mm-hmm. then I think, well, if if consistently all of those things are like, oh, yeah, I feel worse than those, then I think, well, maybe this is a hydrogen sulfide picture.
2: Mm. it's a bit tricky because as you you know we see egg allergy be i i I see egg allergy then as the number one allergen actually um that i see i mean egg is like a lot of people are sensitive to eggs Um, so sometimes people get worse when they eat a lot of eggs because they're actually quite quite sensitive and onion and garlic they flare up any SIBO case but you're right the cruciferous vegetables um, are a good source of sulfur. And typically when we treat hydrogen sulfide, we have a period, not long, um, a period of maybe six weeks or so where we reduce sulfur-containing foods, um, which contains things like red meat, right? So uh, it's it's not just in eggs and vegetables, and but it's it's also found in these other foods. So, uh, and then we incorporate more like I said, soy protein, which tends to be also pretty well tolerated um, from a fermentation standpoint in terms of SIBO. So, it, you know, but it's also important to know that sulfur and hydrogen sulfide I, is this really interesting molecule that it's, it's got a Goldilocks kind of a level. You know, if you have a, um, if it's too low, it's a problem. If it's too high, it's a problem. But if it's just right, it's actually really beneficial and anti-inflammatory and anti-proliferative and very useful because hydrogen um, or sulfur is one of the most important elements in our body. So it's not to be vilified, it's just to be understood in terms of we, we have endogenous production, meaning your own body produces it, but then you also have bacterial overgrowth that produces it. So it's, it's again, just finding the balance there.
1: So for the listeners out there, if you're suffering with a gut issue and you've tried everything and you're confused and you're frustrated and you're not getting better, these, is- these issues are really um, complicated to try and figure out. You know, there's no one great test out here that's going to tell us everything we need to know. And there's not one treatment either that's going to be like the cure-all. It's a matter of just working through the case and just figuring it out. So, Doctor Jacoby, the other thing is that this hydrogen sulfide is hard to treat. As you were saying, mm-hmm. the the antimicrobial options are not really that helpful. Are there any herbs that you use? That-
2: yeah. So the the um, the and it's so nice to hear somebody else say herbs actually, <laughs> because when I talk to Americans. Uh, it's all about herbs, right? Even though I lived in and obviously studied in America for a long time. But in Australia, we say herbs also. So that's a nice, <laughs> nice thing. Um, so what we do is um, we, we use a very, very high dose of oregano oil um, that that sh- uh, shows some promise. But y- there is a real paucity of herbs that are sh- have been shown to be effective for hydrogen sulfide. I think there, there needs to be a lot more research into that and probably just a lot of trial and error on the practitioner side. But what we know is that, that hydrogen sulfide-producing bacteria are really very resistant to bacteria, um, to uh, antibiotic, and that's why it's, a, it's presumed why people have such an issue with it if they've had a lot of uh, antibiotic is because, because they've basically um, killed off everything else and hydrogen sulfide producers survived. And so what we do is bismuth in high doses. So, so bismuth is a binder of hydrogen sulfide. And we use oil of oregano. Um, and there's some data on zinc acetate. I think probably most zinc that's not well absorbed would work because it's another binder. So both bismuth and zinc acetate are binders of hydrogen sulfide. So not even directly bactericidal um, or killing bacteria. So, and berberine has, you know, is hit and miss, I'd say. It's not uh, the greatest herb, but it's one of our star performers when it comes to hydrogen, um, so hydrogen overgrowth um, producers and SIBO. So, you know, and of course, hydrogen is required for the production of hydrogen sulfide. So, maybe in a roundabout way, we are affecting that. But directly bactericidal to um, these. So hydrogen sulfide producers is still very few herbs will do that.
1: And, and as you said, a lot of the times it's a matter of trial and error. Just see mm-hmm. how the patient responds, what they can tolerate, what works. Yeah. It could be a very and, individual thing.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I do get really good responses to... Um, I mean, I think that SIBO hydrogen sulfide might be easier to treat than LIBO hydrogen sulfide, right? So, and what I usually do is, in that case, is what I find works really well is just reducing hydrogen, uh, sorry, uh, sulfur-containing foods for a while, and um, just microbiome restoration, which is really, um, with every patient, I do that. I really have have an intense look at their microbiome and see what I can do to basically till their garden and fertilize their garden and try to regrow some of these native species that they may have lost.
1: And so I'm glad you brought that up. So in the last few minutes, let's focus on microbiome restoration. What are some of the things that you do?
2: I'm a big fan of prebiotics. Once SIBO is cleared, and prebiotic is basically a food for beneficial bacteria. Um for the longest time you know as a, as naturopathic doctors we I mean it's amazing this uh, how much edu- uh, or science has has validated our thoughts on the gut that have been basically dismissed for for you know decades that the that the gut is the root of the cause and we've been doing probiotics and gut re- rehab for for a long long time And to now have real data to show that what we've been preaching all along is correct—that's really wonderful to see. But really, what we've been teaching patients that to to take a probiotic to reseed their digestive tract is really not right. It's archaic, and we shouldn't talk about it like that anymore because probiotics do not replace your own native species. Like you know, you have your own bifido, you have your own lactobacillus you have your own um, important species that even if you take a probiotic that has lactobacillus and, and bifidobacterium in it, it doesn't replace what you've lost. But it does have a regulatory effect on the rest of your garden. And I always tell people it's either a rainforest or a garden, whatever analogy you like, but you have to treat it like that, which means you have to feed and give it nutrients. And that's usually done with uh, prebiotics and polyphenolic foods, um, or that means that that it's vegetables and, uh, and plants that are extremely colourful. They just love that, and that so that could be things like grape skin, uh, green tea, uh, the, the plethora of vegetables that are out there that are very colourful. Um, that's what they love. And again, you know, this is within the context of microbiome restoration, which usually comes after SIBO treatment. So that because a lot of those foods you would react to if you um, if you actually eat them. But then I, I use very specific uh, prebiotics like um, galacto oligosaccharide, also known as bimuno. Um, and that's a particular prebiotic that is like the only prebiotic that's found in breast milk with the sole purpose to feed the infant's microbiome, uh, specifically Bifidobacterium infantis. Very, very important microbi- um, microbiome um, former, really. So, you know, those are the kinds of tricks that I have and have learned over the years. And, um, you know, it's, it's a new frontier for us in terms of microbiome restoration because there's so much damage that has been done to a lot of our patients' microbiome.
1: Dr. Jacoby, you are just a wealth of information. How can our listeners find out more about you?
2: So, you know, I'm, so, I'm sort of all over the place in terms of I've got a clinic uh, called the Biome Clinic, and that's just thebiomeclinic.com. Um, if you know, I'm in Australia, and I have an education platform for practitioners soon also to offer a course for patients. It's called thecebodoctor.com, and there's a lot of free information there. You find the biphasic diet original and the histamine and the um, questionnaires that i talked about also hydrogen sulfide diet handout so we really just offer a lot of um, free materials there and courses that is um, on microbiome restoration and and everything you can think about with SIBO so that's a good place to start and we're also also of course on instagram dr Noella jacobi and on facebook so if you really want to find me, it's not hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to find all of those links. Um, it's, and we'll put them in the, our podcast notes so that you can easily find Dr. Jacoby and all of her resources. Nirala, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been an awesome interview.
2: Great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Neurology Kobe. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Kerry Drisga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Kerry Drisga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc.